The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, it is a very great pleasure to be with you for this men's conference and for the Lord's Day. And we look to the Lord for his help and blessing as we spend these moments together. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Romans and chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, then we're going to turn for one verse to Galatians chapter 2, but we will be coming back to Romans 6 just a few moments after the message begins. Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And then over, please, to Galatians and chapter 2. And to one verse, an exquisite piece of spiritual autobiography, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What you have been hearing in these last words from Galatians chapter 2 is the language of radical change. Paul is not the man that he was in his unconverted days. And it was such a visible thing, no mistaking it, the before and after contrast was as sharp as day and night. His thinking, his beliefs, his affections, his behavior, so different after conversion from what they had been before. And Paul is not alone in that. That's how it often is. There may be no agreement among those who know the individual concerned as to the cause of their conversion, but there's no denying the fact of it. They are so different. That, however, is how it is in every case. It is certainly true that in terms of the outward, conversions are not always as marked as they were in the case of Saul of Tarsus, not by any means. Here is a man, and maybe this is a description of you. And before he was converted, he went to church. He read his Bible. He was honest in his business dealings. He was faithful to his wife. He minded his language. He was kind. In terms of the outward and the visible, the change in that man when he is converted is not nearly as marked as in the case of someone who has lived like Saul of Tarsus. Nevertheless, in every case of true conversion, the change is profound and far-reaching. There may be the widest variations in regard to the externals of behavior and belief, but in terms of what we are at the core of our being, the difference is the same, and it is profound. Every true believer, whatever their history may have been, can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, we were reading a moment back from Romans chapter 6, and I invite you to turn back to that passage of Scripture now. And my reason for directing you to Romans 6 is very simple. There is, I am persuaded, no better place to go in order to understand what we've just been hearing from Galatians chapter 2. If I can put it in terms of art, Galatians 2 verse 20 is an exquisite miniature. In Romans 6, the same subject matter is spread out for us 
on a very broad canvas. Galatians 2 verse 20 tells us that salvation makes us different. Romans 6 does the same, only at greater length and in greater detail. There's a similarity in setting as well. What has Paul been talking about in Galatians 2? We didn't take the time to read it, but had we done so, you would have heard what I'm sure many of you know, that his great theme has been justification, how we come to be right with God. So too, in the chapters preceding Romans 6, arguably too, in moving from the one to the other, from justification to sanctification, God putting us right to God making us inwardly right. Paul's concern is the same, namely, that if God has put us right with himself, if he has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, it will show itself in a holy life. It must do and it shall do. Well, it is around this theme of a holy life that we're gathering our thoughts for these three sessions together. In the first, with the help of Galatians 2 and Romans 6, we are going to think about the power for a holy life. We need power if we're going to live a holy life, and we are going to see that that power is no mere spiritual force, but a glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom, if we are true believers, we have been united. That's this evening's theme. Tomorrow morning, in our second session, with the help of Galatians 5, we're going to ponder the direction of a holy life and how it is the Holy Spirit who both sets the direction and then enables us to take it. And then in the third session, again tomorrow morning, our theme will be the beauty of a holy life, where our focus will be on the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Well, this evening, the power of a holy life, and this is the one that's going to make the most demands upon our thinking. And I'm conscious that you've come to the end of a busy week, sure, I'm sure for most of you, you've you've traveled, but with the Lord's help, it will be to our profit to consider this subject together, the power for a holy life, and how that power is the indwelling Lord Jesus. And here's how we're going to approach it. We're going to think, first of all, about what has happened to him, and then we're going to think about what has happened to us by virtue of our union with him. But before we launch into any of that, let me say a word or two about a contrary power. I'm tempted to use the word introduce, but I refrain because the power in question is one with which, if we are Christians, we are only too familiar, and that is sin. Sin may be said to have a twofold power, a twofold power to which Jesus Christ is the twofold answer. 
In the first place, sin has what we might call condemning power. We were born already guilty of it. And as life progresses, that guilt goes on increasing. And what a hold that guilt has over us. There is no way that we can rid ourselves of it and put ourselves right with God. It is like a stain that nothing can wash out. It is like a sword hanging over your head that follows you everywhere you go. Sin holds over us a condemning power. And if God in his mercy had not provided in Jesus Christ for our justification, for our forgiveness and a right standing with him, that sin would be our eternal undoing. The sword would eventually fall. The sin of which we are guilty would sink us at last into hell. It has a condemning power. But that's not the whole. That's not the only power that sin has over us. It also has a controlling power an enslaving power. Paul reminds his readers here in Romans 6, a little bit on from the passage we read, verse 17, that we were once slaves of sin. He's speaking to Christians. You were once slaves of sin. That's why we lived the sinful lives that we did in our unconverted days. That's why with our bodies we said and did the things of which we are now so ashamed it's why we were unbelievers. It's why we didn't love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. Sin had us in its grip. It had our bodies in its grip. It wasn't Jesus who was our Lord. It was our sinful desires. That's perhaps a description of where things are for you. It's certainly how things were for those who have been genuinely Converted. So, sin has this dreadful twofold power over us in our fallen humanity a condemning power and a controlling power, and we are helpless to change it. But to the helpless, there has come a helper. And this terrible twofold power that sin has over us has met its match in Jesus. Jesus is God's magnificent twofold answer to sin's twofold power. He is the answer to its condemning power. When by grace we put our trust in Him, you by grace put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be freed from your guilt and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, the answer to sin's condemning power, but he is also the answer to its controlling power. And it is to that that we now turn. And speaking by and large throughout this message to those of you who are Christians, to live a holy life was once, quite simply, impossible. Sin 
had us in its grip. But it's not impossible now. If we are true Christians, it is in fact the very life that we're living, a holy life. And it is Christ who is the explanation. It is He who is the power for holy living. That's what Paul is teaching us briefly in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's what he teaches us at length in Romans chapter 6. Well, let's launch into our exposition, beginning with what has happened to our Lord Jesus Christ and moving on to what has happened to us. Well, let's think, first of all, about what has happened to Jesus, which perhaps seems a rather odd place to begin. What is it that has happened to him that has such life-changing implications for us? Well, the answer is in two parts. There is a death that he has died, and there is a life that he now lives In the first place, there is a death that Jesus has died. You're explaining to someone, witnessing to someone about the Lord Jesus and his death, what it's all about, one of your children perhaps. And you say to them that Jesus' death was for sin. It was for sin, our sin, because he had none of his own. It had been laid upon him accounted his, and in his body and his soul he suffered for it so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Here in verse 10 of Romans 6, however, Paul puts it differently. He's speaking about the death that Jesus died, but he doesn't say that it was for sin. He says that it was to sin. The death he died, he died to sin, to sin. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I will try and answer that question in a moment. But before I do so, I want you to notice how explicitly this language of dying to sin or being dead to sin is used of ourselves. Verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It is something that has happened to us. If we are Christians, we have died to sin. Look at verse 11. Paul is winding up this part of his argument so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The two statements go together. Having died to sin, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what's it all about? Well, the answer will come into focus more sharply in a moment or two, I hope. Suffice it for now to say that it is all about deliverance from sin's power. It's enslaving, controlling 
power. That is the big thing that Romans 6 is all about. God so working in our lives that sin no longer has the power over us that it did in our unconverted days. You think what happens at physical death or think what physical death does. It takes us out of one realm and brings us into another. It separates us from this world and brings us into another. And so it is when we die to sin. We pass, as it were, from one world to another, from one realm to another, specifically one in which sin is exercising a controlling power to one in which we are alive to God in Christ Jesus and therefore under his power. Now, when we turn at this point from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're immediately faced with a difficulty. It is said in verse 10 that he died to sin, to sin. The very same language that is used of ourselves is used of him. Can it have the same meaning? We understand only too well, both from observation and experience, what a controlling power sin has over sinful human beings, how it shapes their thinking, how it shapes their lives, how it shapes their destinies. Christ was without sin, wasn't he? Is there any sense in which sin can be said to have had power over him. Surely, it was he who had power over it. He was never its slave. He never did anything that sin wanted him to do. Not once did he present the parts of his body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Always Jesus used the parts of his body for God as instruments of righteousness. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which sin had immense power over Jesus. Sin shaped things for Jesus, determined things for Jesus. It shaped life for him. Think about that. What did it mean for Jesus Christ to live in our fallen world? Well, for one thing, it meant continual exposure to temptation. There was none arising from his pure and sinless heart, but he was assailed from without, wasn't he? He had an enemy who was eager to bring him down, and who in order to do so, plied him with one temptation after another, all the way through his earthly life and ministry, sometimes directly as in the wilderness, more often than not through sinful men and women whom he had in his power. And there was no escape from that temptation. And with temptation, 
came suffering. Hebrews tells us that explicitly. Temptation made the way of obedience hard for our Lord Jesus Christ, especially at the end. And then there was the opposition that he faced from the very people to whom he had come in the greatness of his love. In their wickedness, they hated him without a cause. They envied him. They would not come to him in order to have life. They resisted and rejected him. And at the end, they plotted his ruin and had him put to death. They were a grief to him, a threat to him, and ultimately the death of him. What are we seeing? We are seeing sin as power, shaping and determining life for Jesus. He could not live where he had come to live. He could not teach what he had come to teach. He could not do what he had come to do without sin constantly at the door, luring him, threatening him, opposing him, paining him, and ultimately killing him. And as here we come to the heart of the matter, for Jesus' sin is not just in the world around him. It's not just in his enemies and in his adversary, the devil. It has been laid upon him. He has taken responsibility for it, for our sin. It does not make him sinful. His holiness was unsullied to the very end but it does shape things for him. It does determine things for him. Specifically, it means that his life must end in death and in the judgment of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not the helpless victim of death, but by voluntarily assuming our guilt, it became a necessity. There was no escaping the wages of sin. Sin as guilt, imputed guilt, means that sin had power over him, power to kill him, power to separate his soul and his body, to tear apart what God had joined together at the very beginning of his life, and most solemnly of all, power to separate him from God himself. For that is what sin does. It separates us from God. Christ could not have been a sin bearer without at last our sin constraining God to forsake him. Sin as power. It doesn't control him, enslave him as it does us. It never hurries him into transgression as it does us, but it does hurry him to death, physical death, and to the separation from God that is at the essence of the second death. Sin for Jesus is a profoundly determining force 
It significantly shapes life for him. And it sets unavoidably the conditions and the experiences of life's end. It means betrayal, arrest, and condemnation. It means crucifixion and shame and the hiding of God's face. It means death. That is no slight power that can do that to the Son of God. And amazingly, he submits to it. He puts himself under its power, yes. But by doing so, he also frees himself from it once and for all. What is it for Jesus to die to sin and rise to newness of life? It is to pass from a realm in which sin has such a determining influence to one in which sin has no power over him whatsoever. Not now, not ever. Which brings us to the second thing that I want you to think about as we think about Jesus and what has happened to him. There is a death that he has died and there is a life on which he has now entered, verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. Think about it in terms of contrast. In his resurrection life, sin has no power over the Lord Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. It does not in any way shape or determine things for him. It doesn't set the conditions of his heavenly life. It doesn't bring a dark cloud of temptation over him as it did when he was here. It cannot separate him from God as it was once able to do. All of that is forever over. It doesn't set a cross on his horizon and involve him in pain and suffering and death all over again. All of that is over. Christ's victory over sin is so complete that his resurrection life is utterly untouched by it. Paul puts it in a fascinating way. He tells us that the life he lives, he lives to God. It's one of those things over which it is good to pause and you ask yourself, well, wasn't that the life that he lived when he was here on earth? To God? For his glory and honor and praise in the service of his king, it most certainly was. But in heaven, Jesus now lives to God 
in a way that was not possible when he was here. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Romans, uses the word unhampered. You're wearing a coat that is so big and so heavy, it hampers your movements. Or you're carrying a very heavy rucksack or haversack on your back, and it hampers your movements. Christ in glory is unhampered. No longer does he live to God in the context of temptation, hostility, suffering, rejection, and sin-bearing. With a cross on the horizon, with death to face and endure, all of that is over. From sin's condemning power and from sin's controlling power, he is perfectly and eternally free. So we have thought about what has happened to Jesus. We've thought about this death that he has died, this death to sin. And we thought about the life into which he has now entered. And now, with all of that, we come to ourselves, those of us who are believers, and we think about what all of this has done for us. What has happened to us? We thought about what has happened to him. What has happened to us? So that we are able to do now what it was once impossible for us to do, to live a holy life. There is a death that we have died. How do you think about the beginning of your Christian life? Do you ever think about it in terms of a death and a resurrection? There is a death with Christ that we are said to have died. We are said to have died with him. Paul uses that precise language in verse 8. We have died with Christ. You see how he puts it earlier, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Then in verse 5, he speaks about being united with him in a death like his. And in verse 6, he goes on to say an echo of Galatians 2, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He's ringing the changes With the Christ who died to sin, we too have died. How very difficult it is for us to wrap our minds around that. So let me try and picture it to you. Insofar as it is possible to picture such a thing. Becoming a Christian... Experiencing conversion is far more than adopting a set of beliefs. 
It is fundamentally an encounter with a person. The Jesus who died to sin and now lives to God in glory. It is an encounter with him, a life-altering encounter, if ever there was such a thing. When we come to Christ for salvation, we come to be united to him, the very one from whom our sin had separated us. He comes to live in us, and we, mysteriously and wonderfully, come to live in him. How are we to think about Jesus doing this, coming to live in us, coming to enable us to live in him? Think about him as a man on a mission. That is the character in which he comes to us at the outset of the Christian life as he comes to take us into himself, as he comes to live in our hearts, a man on a mission. And do you know what that mission is? It is a search and destroy mission. He comes to us as the victor, as the one for who for our sakes has taken on sin and has won, who has freed himself from its condemning power and from its controlling power. And now he comes to share with us the fruits of his victory. Now he comes to make us participants in what he has accomplished by his death for sin and his death to sin. And as he does so, there is something that he is after, something that he is targeting. And that is the sin that from the very very beginning of life has held us in its grips. He has it in his sights. And he goes for it. And he doesn't miss. He strikes it a devastating blow. And down it comes. Toppled from its throne. You shall not bear rule in this heart any longer. And that is the end of sin's domination, not of his existence, and we'll be thinking about this tomorrow morning, but of its enslaving power. That is what the apostle means when he speaks in verse 2 about having died to sin. By virtue of our union with the one who by his death gained the victory over sin's power, that power in us is broken. We die to it. We pass out of a realm where it has held sway. And we move into a realm where it no longer controls, no longer enslaves, nor ever shall do again. 
Which brings us to a second thing. We're thinking about what's happened to us because of what's happened to Christ. There is a death that we have died and there is a new life on which we have now entered. Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is that all about? By virtue of our union with the Christ who died to sin and now lives to God, we too have been raised to life. We walk in newness of life. We've passed out of the realm in which sin holds over us lordship and in the power of Christ's resurrection life we're now able to live a new life, a holy life. Verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Set free. In what sense? In the sense that we're able now to live as we were once not able to live. We're able to live a holy life. We can believe now as we were once unable to do. We can love now as we were once unable to love and show it by a life of glad, heartfelt obedience. And so it will continue until the end of our days. And it is the indwelling Christ who is the secret of it, the power for such a life. And that is the light in which we read those exquisite words in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By virtue of his union with the crucified and risen Christ, an old life had ended and a new life had begun. There was a life that Paul had once lived and there was a life that he was now living and it was Christ who was at the heart of it. The Christ who loved him who gave himself for him, with whom he was crucified, and who now lives in him, who is the moment-by-moment -moment object of his faith. 
And as with Paul, so with us if we are true believers. You can say the same thing. Because of this Jesus who has come to live in you, to whom you are now joined mysteriously through faith and the work of the Holy Spirit, there is an old life that has ended and there is a new life that has begun. There is a life that you once lived and there is a life that you now live and it is Christ himself who is at the heart of it having set you free not only from sin's condemning power but from its controlling power sharing with you the fruits of his victory and in his strength enabling you to live to God as you were once unable to to do the moment-by-moment object of your faith. Some very brief points of application as I close. There is in all of this, first of all, a call to self-examination. Here's a man who claims to be justified. Now, he may not use that word he may not be able to tell you what justification actually is. But that's what he means. He tells you that he has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as the gospel has told him to do. And in fulfillment of gospel promise, his sins have all been forgiven. He has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The blessings of justification, righteousness, and life are now his. That's what he says. It's maybe what you say. It's what many of us say. Is he right? Are you right? Am I? Let our lives, the lives that we are living, be the answer for justification and sanctification are inseparable. You can't have the one without the other. In uniting us to himself at the beginning of our Christian lives, Christ not only delivers us from sin's condemning power by forgiving us and clothing us with his righteousness, he delivers us from its enslaving power. It enters into the very definition of a Christian. He walks in newness of life, in the strength of his indwelling Savior. Is that so with you? As I have to ask, is it so with me? Our subject calls us to self-examination. I think of Paul's searching question here in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is that we can't. If we have died to sin, if Jesus the victor has come to indwell us and has toppled sin from its throne, we're living a holy life. And if we're not, then it's a sign that we've never truly become Christians in the first place. So there is in all of this a call to self-examination. 
There is also in all of this an antidote to discouragement. Sin, and we're going to see this tomorrow morning, sin is still a, sin is still a power to be reckoned with. It doesn't rule, but it's still there, isn't it? In our natures, and it's powerful. Where does the strength come from to make headway against the sin that remains in our natures? To live a life of growing holiness, it comes from the one who by the Holy Spirit lives in us. It is by his power that a holy life began, and it is by the same power that that life continues and flourishes. He, brothers, is the answer to our weakness. He is the answer to sin's remaining strength. We're to live by faith in him, every day looking to him, to go on working in us, to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We are weak, but he's not weak. He's the antidote to discouragement. And then there is in all of this a pointer to what will be. And I find this particularly precious. We've been thinking about Christ living, to use William Hendrickson's word, living to God in glory, unhampered. In a realm where sin does not condition things for Jesus at all, that is our destiny as well. One day, if we are his, we will live in a world like his, where sin will not condition life at all. There will be no more temptation, no more inner conflict, no more defeats, no more sorrow, because we're not the Christians that we ought to be, no more sickness, no more death. Sin no longer conditions life for Jesus, as it did when he was here. And sin will no longer condition life for us, because we will be where he is. We will live to God as he lives to God. That is the blessing purchased by his blood. That is the blessing that will be ours one day, as all that he has done comes to be ours in all its glorious fullness. And then one last thing. What abundant matter there is in all of this for thanksgiving. Why are things so different for us if we are true Christians? Why is it that sin has no longer the condemning power that it once did, clinging to us, dragging us down to our eternal loss? Why do we have such bright hope of being delivered one day from everything that sin shapes? Why does it no longer have the controlling power over us that it once did? It all comes down to this. He loved me. The Son of God who loved me. Why did he not leave me under sin's condemning power? 
Why did he not leave me under sin's controlling power? Because he loved me. And that moved him to come and enter into this world and take our sin upon him. And that sin so profoundly shaping things for him that at last it hurries him to death. And all so that we could be united to him, so that he could come to live in us and we could live in him. And we could enjoy the fruits of all the victory that he has won and be freed from our guilt and in his strength be freed from sin's dominion. He loved us. He loved you. He loved me. Let's give thanks. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you that he has come into our hearts and lives there. And we thank you for the power that he is in us to live as we were once unable to live. Lord, do bless these things to us, we pray. Give us good rest tonight. Bring us together tomorrow morning. We pray that it will be a blessed time that we share together. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.